George Carl is the sixth winningest coach in NBA history with 1,175 career victories. Carl is known for being unfiltered and has never shied away from talking about the NBA betting scandal. So the conspiracy theories, I think, were awoken by the Donnie problem. And I think that opened the window up for more conspiracy theories. Theories of the NBA was manipulated by the big markets and by the superstars. You know, they wanted Charles Barkley and Michael Jordan to be in the finals. We lost to Charles Barkley in the game. The Phoenix shot 64 free throws in a game seven. In the two months since we've launched this podcast, countless basketball fans have asked if we're going to talk about specific games. The 97 Eastern Conference Finals, the 2000 Western Conference Finals, the 2010 NBA Finals, the list goes on and on. One game that wasn't on our radar when we started was Game 7 of the 1993 Western Conference Finals between the Seattle Supersonics and the Phoenix Suns. Carl is telling me about that game where his team, the Sonics, shot 36 free throws and Seattle's opponent, the Charles Barkley-led Phoenix Suns, shot 64. Early in the game, I was thinking about getting thrown out. I mean, I thought it was so absurd what was going on that I thought I had to make a statement for my team. And my coaching staff had to calm me down on that. Who refereed Game 7 of the 1993 Western Conference Finals? Ed T. Rush, who you'll learn more about in this episode, Mike Mathis, and of course, Dick Bavetta. You know, I was pretty aggressive with the referees, saying, what the hell is going on here? What's the story? This is crazy. There's a lot of crazy about that game that I thought was, for better phrase, unprofessional. I thought the referee got out of control. There's just a lot of weird to a Game 7. A Game 7 which should be something that you always remember. And it turned it into kind of an unprofessional, what the hell is going on type of game. I think the conspiracy that come up is the NBA might not have been honest in who they wanted to play in the finals or the NBA championships. Referees can manipulate a game for any reason. And sometimes it's personal. I'm Tim Livingston. This is Whistleblower. Episode 7, The Golden Goose. There were certain referees that you just didn't talk to, but uh, there's also certain referees that are always refereeing the same games. They're always refereeing the big games. We're still with former Sacramento Kings center Scott Pollard. You heard Pollard in our last episode talking about the 2002 Western Conference Finals. Some of the referees don't ref the big games. Some of them don't ref the playoffs. It's a valid argument to say, for the NBA to say, well, we vet our referees and we only want the ones that have the highest record of correct calls referring the big games, right? And so it makes sense, but it also lends a little bit of credence to Tim Donahue's argument that there's company men. Well, we got a big game. We need it to go one way. Send in the guys that we know are going to make that happen. Now, you can look at it from the NBA's perspective and their argument, which is a very valid one. Or you could look at it from Tim Donahue's perspective, which has also got some validity to it. NBA referees can manipulate any game they want to. And here's why. 
at the beginning of every season, every NBA team has referees come and speak to them about what the focuses are going to be that year, what happened the last year, things they've been told to work on. And so the preseason is part of everybody's getting back together, getting the rust off and focusing on, okay, they're going to call three seconds, for example, this year more often because last year there was a whole bunch of them violations and they didn't get called. So that's a focus. In that meeting with every single team, they tell you, hey, we get emails after every single game that tell us what we messed up on and tell us what we did well on. The NBA, during the playoffs, communicates with its referees before every game. The league points out calls that were missed by the previous game's officials and outlines which calls need to be enforced for that night's game. Here's Pollard using Game 6 of the 2002 Western Conference Finals as an example. Those three referees get an email the night before that say, hey, the big guys from the Kings have been getting away with a lot of fouls on Shaq. Now let's just say that happened. That's not saying make sure the Kings lose, is it? But it is saying that the referees have it in their head that the Kings big men have been getting away with a lot of fouls. And well, in game six of the Western Conference Finals in 2002, three of the Kings big men fouled out. Shaq didn't, but Vlade, Chris, and Scott Pollard did. So, huh, is that the NBA on the one hand telling you, the referees telling you, yeah, we can fix any game we want to. They're not saying that directly, but that gives them every single opportunity. That's your loophole right there. Now. I'm not saying that's how it happens. I'm not saying the NBA fixes games. I'm just saying the referees told us every year they got emails before and after every game, letting them know what to work on, what they did well on, and maybe something that's coming up in a game with a certain player. That gives a referee any opportunity or the NBA to fix any game they want to. We previously talked about a cooperator having the ability to be 100% honest without telling 100% of the truth. As you probably know by now, I don't believe significant pieces of Tim Donahue's story when it comes to his transgressions in the scandal, but it's important to note, when it came to the officiating culture in the NBA, the FBI vetted Donahue's claims and found them to be credible. Donahue worked numerous NBA playoff games and has firsthand knowledge of the communication between the league and officials. Hello? Hey, Timmy. We called Donahue and asked him to break down how that communication worked. Yeah, it was during the playoffs that there'd be meetings in the morning around 11 a.m. to where you would sit down and watch tape of a playoff series that you were officiating in, and they would show you plays, and they wanted you to concentrate on certain plays that night in the game, and those plays always went in favor of the team that was down in the series. So if a A team was up two games to none in a series. They'd show you plays, uh, things that they want you to look for and concentrate on that were going to ultimately go against that team that night and help the team that was down in the series. And they would tell you this by saying, you know, look, look at these plays. They were missed by the other referees that refereed the games prior to you, and we need you guys to go in and clean this up and do a better job from what they did. So these meetings, these meetings took place before every playoff game. I mean, it was it was something that was done on a continuous basis throughout the playoff series. You were put in a room, you watched video from the previous games, and they told you what to look for and what they wanted called that night, what they wanted you to concentrate on. And based on the fact that you always wanted to progress into that next round of the playoffs, and those people that were there were grading you, 
you always put a major point of emphasis on what they wanted you to call, and it was always in favor of the team that was down in the series. Do you remember any specific games or series that stand out? Definitely. Dallas Mavericks and the Houston Rockets were up two games to none in a seven-game series that started in Dallas, and they were moving on to their home floor, and they were definitely in a position where they were in control of the series. New York Times, May 3rd, 2005. Houston Rockets coach Jeff Van Gundy said Sunday that officials were calling fouls more readily and unfairly on his seven-foot-six center, Yao Ming. You've got to give Mark Cuban credit, Van Gundy said. He's been calling and calling about Yao. He's taken a lot of fines in his time, and he's been on them hard. And he's gotten the benefit. Van Gundy said that after the Mavericks' victory Saturday in Game 4, which tied the playoff series at two games each, he received an unsolicited call from a friend who was a league referee not working the playoffs. The referee, Van Gundy said, told him that referees were looking at Yao harder because of Mark's complaints. Van Gundy declined to identify the official, saying, I don't want to get my man in trouble. Van Gundy ended by saying, I didn't think that really worked in the NBA, but in this case, it has. Van Gundy chose not to identify the league official, but thankfully for us, Donnie has no problem naming names. Donnie Baden, who was the group supervisor at that time for that series and came in and I was an alternate official in game three of that series. And he came in and started pointing out a lot of things that he wanted us to look for and concentrate on that night. As a supervisor, Donnie Vaden acted as a liaison between the NBA and its referees. When Donahue says the league told officials before each game which fouls had been missed in the previous game and which fouls to concentrate on that night, it was Vaden who would communicate those updated priorities to that night's refs. According to Donahue, Vaden told the referees to focus on potential infractions by Houston Star Center Yao Ming, but he also relayed that information to his friend, Houston's head coach, Jeff Van Gundy. Not only did he tell us, but he was friends with Jeff Van Gundy, and he told Jeff Van Gundy that these things were going to be looked at very closely that night, and after, I believe, Dallas tied the series up two games to two, Jeff Van Gundy went public and blew a gasket to the media and was ultimately fined, I believe, $100,000 because he wouldn't reveal the name of the league official that told him that this was going to happen. And so Donnie Vaden, he was a referee supervisor. He was a former NBA referee who moved into uh, working as a supervisory position with the league uh, for the officials. So he would travel around the playoff series, basically bringing the message from the league office of what they um, wanted done and what they wanted corrected based on the previous games that had taken place in that playoff series. And for the Houston-Dallas series, you guys had an 11 a.m. meeting, correct? Right. So 11 a.m. meeting, Donnie Vaden comes in. Is it just you and the other referees, like in a small conference room? What's the setting? It's in a hotel room. One of the uh, hotel rooms of one of the referees we would use and uh, go over the tape, plug in the VCR and go over the tape, and it would point certain things out that the league office wanted the referees to concentrate on that night in the game. And being the alternate referee that night, 
I was to be in the locker room in case somebody got hurt and also point out certain calls that were maybe missed in the first half and point them out to the referees when they come in at halftime. And Donnie Baden sat in the locker room with me the whole first half and basically told me that he had told, you know, Jeff Van Gundy to to be on the lookout that these things were going to be a point of emphasis and, and called that night. And Van Gundy went public and was fined $100,000. And what, I knew it was Donnie Baden because he had told me in the locker room that he was friends with him and that he had told him that, you know, this stuff was going to be scrutinized and to try to uh, make sure Yao Ming knew ahead of time. But, you know, that that wasn't the case. They went out and kind of called a lot of things that went against Houston. And in that game three, uh, Houston ended up uh, losing that game and ended up losing a seven-game series. So the NBA gives its referees a directive to focus on calls that will negatively affect Houston. The Rockets' coach publicly reveals that he was warned about these calls by a referee. And what does the NBA do next? It finds the Rockets coach $100,000 for having the audacity to reveal how the NBA works behind the scenes. To quote Ralph Nader, no government in our country can lawfully stifle free speech and find those who exercise it. The NBA under present circumstances can stifle and fine both players and coaches who speak up. If the rules are the rules, and the rules are the same for every player, every team. Why does the NBA need to communicate with referees at all during the playoffs, let alone before every game? And the ultimate question, how can that communication not be viewed as manipulative? According to Donahue, it was Dallas's outspoken owner, Mark Cuban, who worked the system, complained to the league, and compelled the NBA to referee the final five games of the series differently than the first two. Mark Cuban felt that these calls were missed and started to do the stuff that Mark Cuban did back then, which was bitch and complain every time he lost. So with that being said, a lot of times his complaints, you know, were directed to the league office who passed them down to us and, you know, things got corrected. For those of you who don't know Mark Cuban as the eccentric owner of the Dallas Mavericks, you might know him as one of the Sharks on the hit ABC show, Shark Tank. We spoke with Ringer staff writer Katie Baker, who recently profiled Cuban about his role in the NBA zeitgeist. Well, broadly, Mark Cuban is the answer to the question, what would I do if I had a billion dollars? He is a salesman, he's an NBA owner, he's an entrepreneur. He's a rabble rouser, and he is someone who has, throughout his life, looked at things, thought to himself, I can do that better, and then spent a lot of money in order to do so, and made a lot of money too. What's interesting about Mark Cuban and his story is he and a friend of his who were big Indiana basketball fans having gone there were upset that they couldn't really listen to Indiana basketball on the radio. So. They thought, why don't we put radio on the internet? And long story short, he then sold that company in 1999 to Yahoo for $5.7 billion in stock, which he cashed out of just in time for the dot-com bubble to burst. So he was very fortuitous at his timing. Cuban lived in Dallas and was a Mavericks season ticket holder. He sat in the cheap seats for years, 
frustrated by his favorite team's futility. But then, after selling his Yahoo stock, Cuban did what every one of us wishes we could do. He bought his favorite team. I've always been a basketball junkie as long as I can remember. And so I was a Dallas Mavericks season ticket holder. And during that time that I owned season tickets, they were awful. And I thought, I can do better than this. And then it dawned on me, wait, I've, I can put my money where my mouth is finally. And, you know, not just say it, but inquire about buying it. And honestly, I didn't even care about price. They told me, here's the price. I said, yes. When he came onto the scene, he was an outspoken owner. Even in terms of just the way he looked, he was wearing like, you know, jeans and boots on the sideline and t-shirts. He was yelling at the refs. He put his email address up on the Jumbotron and encouraged people to email him. And he really started just thinking about treating players and, and treating owning a team differently than was the status quo. Cuban changed the culture in Dallas. And a year after he bought the team, the Mavericks won 53 games and reached the playoffs for the first time in 10 years. We focused on winning, and as it turned out, we had a nucleus of a great team, and we just didn't, people just didn't expect us to win, so the players didn't expect us to win. And so I walked in and said, I expect you guys to win. We're not gonna mess around anymore. If you don't lay it out, if you don't put it all on the line, I'm gonna trade your ass, and you know, guess what? This is going to be a premier destination in the NBA. You can laugh because that's what everybody did, but I'm gonna kick everybody's ass. They just don't know it. Damon John, founder and CEO of apparel company FUBU, and a colleague of Cubans on Shark Tank, had this to say about attending Mavericks games with Cuban. And I don't understand why somebody will pay so much to have a team just to be miserable. <laughs> the entire game, and I'm talking about when they're winning, he's miserable. I mean, his stomach's in knots, he's cursing, he's, he's drooling all over himself. It's just none of his staff, I don't want to sit anywhere near him. I mean, he's one of my good friends, sure. but... He's nasty. Mark Cuban's biggest controversy over the course of his ownership career is more of an ongoing personality trait than any one event, which is just his longtime war against the officials. When I interviewed him before the start of the season, I asked him what his most unachievable pipe dream is and what he thinks is the most achievable in terms of just pie in the sky things that he would love to see in the NBA. And he said the officiating for both of those questions. Since he came to the league, he's been at odds with the league office, the officials, both on a micro game by game level and also in a more kind of broad based organizational cold war in a sense. Under Cuban's leadership, the Mavericks began ascending in the early 2000s. By 2006, Dallas was one of the best teams in the league and reached the NBA Finals. There was just one problem. In May 2006, Mark Cuban, who was a very dedicated and effusive blogger back in the day, wrote a blog post about the NBA officiating. And in the blog post, he basically made the argument that NBA officials were being given prime playoff games almost as a, a little bit of a carrot or, you know, kind of a political reward versus the best officials being assigned all the playoff games. In 2005, he went through and 
calculated the Mavericks record per official and started publishing that as a little you know, tongue in cheek, but also not stat. So he'd been sort of antagonizing and, and also accurately in some ways pointing out problems with the way the officiating was set up. And he said that the officiating would probably improve if only 12 officials were working playoff games instead of the top 33 or so. He concluded the post with the words, anything less cheats us all, which when you're talking about officiating, the word cheat is kind of a, a nuclear thing to say. So this wasn't anything new for him. Going into the 2006 playoffs, that was kind of the atmosphere that he had cultivated with respect to the officiating. Remember when we said that NBA referees derived a significant portion of their salary via playoff and finals bonus checks? Well, if only 12 referees are working playoff and finals games instead of 33, that's a lot less money for two-thirds of playoff-bound officials. And that 2006 blog post published a month before the finals wasn't the first time Cuban antagonized referees. By 2006, Cuban had already amassed over $1 million in fines for criticizing officials. In 2002, Cuban was fined $500,000 for saying of league director of officials, Ed T. Rush, Ed T. Rush might have been a great ref, but I wouldn't hire him to manage a Dairy Queen. A businessman at heart, Cuban viewed officiating as the weakest part of the NBA's business, a flawed system in desperate need of an overhaul. You know, the bottom line is the guy in charge doesn't care about putting the best possible product. And I don't think it's because his heart's not in the right place with Ed Rush. You know, refereeing 29 years does not qualify you to be an executive necessarily or a good manager in a billion dollar corporation. And that's just the problem that the NBA is facing right now. By 2006, Mark Cuban's obsession with referees had done little to improve the system, but many feel it made him a target of the NBA's whistleblowing brigade. After the Mavericks went up 2-0 in the 2006 NBA Finals, the same system that helped him the previous playoffs against Houston turned against him. Over the next four games, Dallas's opponent, the Miami Heat, shot 57 more free throws than the Mavs, including 40 more free throws in the final two games of the series. Miami star point guard Dwayne Wade shot 46 free throws alone in the final two games. And Cuban wasn't thrilled. I don't know. I mean, and I guess he got fouled more. Everybody's won on their home floor, but is it going to be difficult for you guys to go back and defend? Ask me a real question. Is this the worst loss that you've ever experienced? No, when I was three years old and I was playing on the Pee Wee team, we got beat in the last second. Ask me a real fucking question, okay? Game six of the 2002 Western Conference Finals between the Kings and the Lakers is the most controversial game in NBA history. But the 2006 NBA Finals between the Heat and the Mavericks is the league's most controversial series, and it haunts Cuban to this day. He never really got over losing that, you know, what was his first NBA Finals. He really saw it as getting screwed by the league, and he still does. He viewed it with sort of a controversial mindset that was buoyed by the fact that it is kind of one of sports' greatest what-ifs to this day. I, I just don't think he's, like, over it. Like, you can kind of see his temperature rising when it even gets, like, mentioned. We need to talk with Mark Cuban because he cares as much as we do. He's an owner, he's a businessman, but he's also a fan. He wants to see an even playing field. He wants the game to be played with integrity. 
I ended my interview with Katie by asking for advice on the best way to reach the Mavericks owner. My advice for you guys is probably the same as the advice that I got, which is just send him an email. And he did write back, I think four minutes after I reached out to him. So he sees the emails and he responds if he wants to. April 18th, 2020, 8.29 a.m. Request for interview. Tim Donahue Scandal Podcast. Hi, Mark. We would like to interview you for our podcast series on the Tim Donahue Scandal. The series is a culmination of a years-long investigation. Let us know if you have some time in the coming days slash weeks to hop on a call and discuss the project. We'll work around your schedule and appreciate the time in advance. Given your position, we understand the sensitive nature of the subject so we can be as detailed or as broad as you'd like. We look forward to hearing from you. Yo, what up, man? Hey, just heard back from Mark Cuban. <laughs> Didn't you just email him like five minutes ago? I emailed him two minutes ago. He got back at 8.31 a.m. after I sent him an 8.29 a.m. email. Wow. Uh, all right, so what did he say? Uh, he replied, no, thank you. Now isn't the time. So, what's the next move? I mean, if now isn't the time, that implies that there is a right time, right? Cuban has spent 20 years complaining about NBA officiating, and he's done so loudly. But he declines to comment on the scandal that confirmed that he was right, that the NBA's refereeing system was flawed and in desperate need of reform. There's a reason for that, which we'll get to a little later. After receiving the half-million-dollar fine in 2002 for his Ed T. Rush Dairy Queen comments, Cuban doubled down in an interview with ESPN. The fact of the matter is, the NBA is more about power than it is about getting the best possible product or even protecting its players, Cuban said at the time. It's typical NBA. They didn't call me to tell me. I had to hear about it from someone else. They don't want to address the problems. There wasn't a single word that I said that I hadn't said to them privately a dozen times. More amazingly, a lot of people in the league agree with me and still they won't do anything. There is definitely a premium on playing politics over smart business. Call it the Enron way. It's far easier to find me than address the problems. And unfortunately, whether I ask the questions publicly or privately, the NBA doesn't care enough about its players or customers to do something. The Mavericks coach at the time, Don Nelson, also weighed in. I thought it was exorbitant, said Nelson of the fine. I was very surprised with the amount. I thought it was going to be around $50,000. I guess the commissioner let him know who was in charge. Perhaps the Dallas area sports writer with the most perspective on Cuban is ESPN personality and Dallas Morning News columnist, Tim Kalashaw. Kalashaw met Cuban right after he bought the Mavericks and quickly learned about Cuban's frustrations with NBA officiating. He had been owner less than a month. So whenever that is, 2000 or 2001, and the Mavericks still aren't good. And they have Nash and Dirk and Finley, but they're not a good team yet. And they've lost the game and he's in the locker room after the game and he's just shaking his head. And he, he said something to me about the refs. I said, well, when your team's better, you'll get those calls. And he said, why do we have to wait? Why should anybody have to wait? 
And I just, I thought, well, that's, that's naive. <laughs> Everybody knows how the NBA works. The good teams and the good players get the calls. But that was kind of his whole thing from the beginning. Why isn't it fair? And of course, the NBA will tell you, oh, well, of course it's fair. Michael Jordan doesn't get favorable calls and Magic doesn't get favorable calls. But of course, everybody knows they do. So that was kind of the starting point. And, you know, he barely owned the team and he, he was not railing against officials at that point in time. And it grew out of that. I'd say 80% of the stuff that he suggests in writing or in quotes after a game or before a game about officials and what they should change, 80% of it's right. And a lot of it they've done in how they judge officials and, and, and making it a better system. But the flip side of that is him sitting on his courtside seat, just screaming about 25 calls a game. Um, and I always thought that is bad for his players. He was the first owner to really dress up the locker room, you know, really make the planes and the hotels as, as good as possible. And his reason was, I'm taking away all the players' excuses. Well, here he's giving them one by, they said, well, the owner's saying we got all these bad calls. That's why we're losing. We get all the bad calls. So I never understood that part of it. And I always thought that part kind of circumvented what he was really doing and thinking away from the game. So, I mean, I, I think he's had a fairly pronounced effect on officiating and how it's done. If he would go sit up in a suite somewhere and stay out of the way, it might work even better. But most of what he feels about refs, those things are largely correct. That controversial Mavs Heat series was in 2006, but 14 years later, Cuban's relationship with NBA officials is as contentious as ever. It's gotten worse. That's why I tweeted. I mean, I've gone a year and a half without commenting on the officials <laughs> or more. And it's just gotten progressively worse. I know it was a close game. Trey Young drove in for a layup. This is Selby Lopez, a sports producer for the Dallas Morning News, who published an interview with Cuban right after the Dallas-Atlanta game this season. It was one of those plays where basically Atlanta was going to score anyways, but if you were looking at the rule, it should have been a dead ball. He went scorched earth. <laughs> and he was furious, but it was also somewhat punctual because rather than just kind of yelling, he was more of calling for change, saying it starts at the top. These refs have been messing up for too long. And he wanted to fix their training to go back to the top have them have them retrained in a better way. That was his main sentiment throughout the whole interview. He couldn't really get too animated because he he'd been yelling so much during the game. Out of a million refs around the world, we have this incestuous okay. group of refs that, that we've hired. Literally brothers, spouses. I don't know which came first, the hiring or the spousing, but you know, same high school, you know, same cities. His main point after the game was just like on the state of NBA officiating that it, it needed to improve and that training needed to improve. I think my main takeaway from that was that he put the system for how referees are trained out into the open from my record for the first time that I've ever noticed. And he kind of just exposed it for 
how it's only run by such a small group of people and that it should really be more open and there should be more training and more perspectives and it's just outdated. Cuban went on to blast the NBA for its hiring and training of referees over the past 30 years. In addition to Ed T. Rush, Cuban called out Ronnie Nunn, Rush's replacement, who according to Cuban, only hired his buddies from the Ohio Valley Conference. Cuban also noted that the NBA in 1997 hired a 23-year-old referee with no experience by the name of Rashawn Michelle. If that name sounds familiar, it's because Michelle, who Cuban claims was hired by the NBA under a fake name with phony credentials, was arrested and charged with six felonies for accepting bribes in the college basketball corruption scandal of 2017. The league has improved since the days of Tim Donahue, but Cuban clearly remains flabbergasted that the NBA, a multi-billion dollar corporation, hasn't done more to improve the quality of its officiating. It's just the ridiculous stuff that we've done and just repeat over and over and over. I get, look, the league doesn't care who wins or loses games, and that's the way it should be. But the definition of insanity, so you have Ronnie Nunn in the last 12 years, Don Vaden, Bob Delaney, and now Monty McCutcheon, all doing the exact same shit. Exactly. Cuban's famous, he's worth billions, but he's still at his core one of us. He's a fan. After Tim Donahue was released from prison, the disgraced ref published a book, which detailed the NBA's refereeing culture and called out referees who, according to Donahue, allowed their biases to compromise the integrity of the game. The book was of interest to Cuban for obvious reasons. So I'm at, uh, met a high school buddy of mine and we're at uh, Bobby Vance on 46th Street. This is Warren Flagg, the ex-FBI agent you heard in episode five. And so we're having steaks, and the phone rings. And it's Mark Cuban. He goes, Flagman, this is Mark Cuban. I go, yeah. He said, well, what did Tim write in his book? And I said, Mark, I'm going to tell you this, OK? You were sued, I believe, $400,000 for your comments about the final game. I said, you need to sue the NBA, and you will win triple damages. Tim and I will absolutely testify. Words of substance. And his remark to me, he said, I can't do that. It will kill the golden goose. So Mark Cuban, in your opinion, did he think that the 2006 NBA Finals were <laughs> corrupt? Please. I'm sure he would not have he would not have said what he said and get fined by you. That's a lot of money. Okay? Now, he's a rich guy. That isn't your normal $15 ticket, okay? Mark Cuban entered the NBA in 2000, and 20 years later, still isn't satisfied with the state of NBA refereeing. And according to Flag, back in 2009, Mark Cuban had a chance to cause a ruckus. He had a chance to launch a full-scale investigation that would force the NBA to overhaul its officiating, precisely the thing he'd spent a decade campaigning for. In short, Mark Cuban had a chance to be the whistleblower, but he backed down. The team he bought for $285 million in 2000 on the heels of a $7.4 billion NBA TV rights deal was now worth close to a billion dollars. Mark Cuban was a fan 
who felt he got screwed out of a championship, but he was also a businessman and he wasn't going to kill the golden goose. So I have a favor to ask you, for which I'll thank you in advance. Mark Cuban's email isn't hard to find. It's just a quick Google search. He has answers and insight that we, the non-billionaire fans, deserve to hear. After this episode, send Mark Cuban an email with the subject, Whistleblower Podcast. In the body of the email, please write just four words. Now is the time. Whistleblower is a production of Tenderfoot TV and Whistleblower Media in association with Cadence 13. Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay are executive producers on behalf of Tenderfoot TV. Myself and Doug Matica are creators and executive producers on behalf of Whistleblower Media. Our co-executive producer is Colo Casio. Our lead producer is Alex Vespasted. Co-producers are Mason Lindsay, Matt Keller, and Paul Kasheri. Sound design, mixing, and mastering by Cooper Skinner. Additional mixing by Devin Johnson. Original music is by Makeup and Vanity Set. Cover design and illustration by Mr. Soul. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum and Grace Royer at UTA, Ryan Nord in the Nord Group, Beck Media and Marketing, Station 16, Paul Anderson and Nick Pinella of Workhouse Media, Max Hacker and John Bagakis, the teams at Tenderfoot TV and Cadence 13, and to Michael Imperioli. Check out his new podcast, Talking Sopranos, wherever you get your podcasts. Lastly, thank you to Liz Livingston and Tali Ravid for your invaluable insights and for never letting us give up on this story. For more information about the podcast, visit whistleblowerpod.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, five stars preferably, and review. Thanks.